because it's humid and warm, and we can. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then we hear from that king. He says, I surely will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. Our only refuge, our only hope, our only real happiness as believers in Jesus Christ or as human beings is the Lord Jesus himself. This is our calling. This is the constant universal appeal of the word of God to mankind, that we would take our refuge in our God. And God the Son, as revealed through the scriptures in the New Testament and his coming, God the Son who came to save us from our sins. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. If we need to confess any known sins to God, this would be a good opportunity to do that. Then I'll open us in prayer. Our Father, we pause to thank you for fellowship that you've established through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the participation that we have in the ministry of the gospel and the high calling, the high spiritual calling to serve you in these terms as disciples of your Son. Father, we recognize his mission to reveal you to the world and how he's commended that mission to us. And we we praise you for every opportunity, every time you open the door, that we can introduce someone to you through your son. Now, Father, we ask that you'd strengthen us to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ according to what he has said that your spirit has inspired through the apostles. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn your Bibles, please, tonight. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Who cares what I have to say? Let's hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to hear about his hard sayings about being a disciple. Sorry, this is bothering me. Hard sayings from the Lord Jesus Christ about being a disciple. I don't mind admitting to you that I have never heard a sermon on this topic before. I'm sure many have been given. I've listened to hundreds and thousands, perhaps, of hours of Bible teaching, and I've never heard a message on this topic arranged this way before. Most of the sayings I'm going to pull out of context tonight occur, well, they all occur in a setting, a literary setting where Jesus is speaking through the pen of the apostle uh, who has recorded this event. Some of them are the same event recorded by different authors from their different perspectives. 
But all of them are very challenging and convicting. And my challenge to you tonight is don't try to sidestep it and make this about somebody else. This is for you and me. This is for us. Hard sayings from the Lord Jesus Christ about discipleship. There we go. Matthew 10, skipping down, we, li- we spent most of last uh, Wednesday on Matthew 10. And we had his, his first sending of the 12 into a mission where he told them the gospel, where they were to pro- proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. What was the gospel of the kingdom? What was the message when John the Baptist was on earth and after his retirement from Herod? How was, how was the message being carried forth by Jesus and his disciples? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That's the gospel of the kingdom offer, Jesus Christ offering the kingdom to Israel. That's what, that, that's what the message was, and that's what he sent the disciples to do in Matthew 10. We have them listed at the beginning of Matthew 10, and here at the end, or t- toward the end, you have an incredible challenge that is very hard for us. It's hard on our ears, and surely there's a way to get out of it. Well, let's, let's read it. It says in verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not oxios, worthy of me. That word worthy comes up in a lot of these verses I'm going to pull up tonight. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It's not just your culture where there's a problem between parents and their children, grown children and, gro- and, and their parents, where there's a divide. It happens in your culture. It happens in every culture. But it isn't universal that everyone experiences this. I have a wonderful relationship with my parents, with my mother, my remaining living parent. I have a fantastic relationship, and I always have, except for about two weeks when I was 17. Six, eight months, but it, it, was, it was a hard time. But I, I mean, it's not everybody that everybody doesn't have a bad relationship with their parents. I'm looking around, I see that most of you don't have bad relations with your parents. You have problems, but it's not in general a bad relationship. But some of you do. Some of you have really bad uh, dealings with your parents or none at all, and that's better. That's best for you, and that's a real challenge. To you, I would say that nobody's a good father like God the Father. You'll never have a father like God the Father. And if your dad wasn't a great dad, your heavenly father is better than the best. Those of you who have great parents and you enjoy your parents and you have a good relationship with them, this verse is very challenging to you. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. My children are present tonight. He who loves father and mother more than the Lord Jesus Christ is not worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's something to test yourself on. I don't know if I know him well enough to love him as much. I mean, I know my mom and dad really well. Do I even know him well enough to love him more than I love my parents? There are a couple of ways people I've seen try to, try to wriggle out of this. There's the dispensational answer. This was Israel. Jesus is talking to Israel. This is not for us. Well, there's a couple problems with that. One of them, you know, is that Matthew's writing during the church age as an apostle of Christ founding the church. So that's what this document is to. It's to the church. I mean, it is. It's written in the church age. That's the first obvious problem with taking Matthew and saying it doesn't apply to us. 
Now, Jesus is speaking to Israel in this event. Before Matthew wrote it down, Jesus did say it to his disciples who are going forth with the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. So there is a distinction. But here's the second problem with that, with doing this with, uh, with anything Jesus says in the gospel, anything in the New Testament. The second problem is that, um, that if it's for Israel, that was actually a lower order of existence than you've been called to. It was a lower expectation that Israel would walk according to the Mosaic law and thereby conform to the righteousness of God. And it's guaranteed that if you were in Israel, you would fail to keep the law. What do you do when you fail to keep the perfect law of God in Israel? What do you do? Sacrifices and offerings. There was the sacrificial system pointing to Christ who would die for our sins as the one and only real sacrifice. And so Israel was, was in an order and a time in which God's righteousness was re- being revealed through the Mosaic law and especially in their failure to stay within its bounds. The law showed us our sinfulness and I'm extemporaneously preaching out of Galatians now. Now there's a problem with saying, well, that was for the law, not for now. So that it's too high for us. It was high, it, Israel had a high calling, but we don't have this high calling. That's absolutely absurd because you've been given the Holy Spirit of God living in you to make you the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what Israel was required to do was much less than what you're required to do to be. In fact, I believe only by the Spirit can you produce this love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope we have of being good disciples of Jesus or worthy of him is the Holy Spirit. And didn't the disciples through their ministry show their constant frailty and failure at being good disciples. Do you know the story of the disciples? The last night of training, they had the uproom discourse, the last big teaching. Peter missed a lot of what Jesus said, asked questions. Jesus went back and told him again. And then Peter denied him three times and showed the greatest colossal failure of all discipleship in all of human history when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times on the night in which he was betrayed. The apostle Peter Uh, these guys are not great disciples. They're saving their lives and losing them, you see. But um, this high calling is not something we should weasel out of. It's something we should be convicted by. Are you there yet? Do you love the Lord Jesus more than your parents? He who loves son or daughter more than me. Okay, this is getting tough now. Now, those of you who don't have sons and daughters, it's half the room. You are sons and daughters. You ever notice if you got a dad that hugs, that he hugs you a little extra tight sometimes? And you're like, this isn't for me, this is for him. I had a dad like that. My dad was huge. He was 6'5", and, uh, and I'm just a runt compared to him. And he was, he, he was 230, and it looked good on him. But anyway, um, <laughs> he was huge, his giant shoulders. When my dad would hug me, sometimes I would be done with the hug before he was. Know what I'm talking about? You ever have one of those hugs where somebody really loves you, and they're hugging you more than you feel like it? Why are you still hugging me? And I knew from a very young age, my dad loved me so very much. He was very emotional about it. He wasn't a big crying, emotional person all the time, but he would hug me and show me that he really loved me and, he, and it was deep to him. It was very, very much not just about comforting me. It was really important to him. And I love that. It's a beautiful thing. Um, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you there now, does this re- is this meant to diminish our love for our parents or for our children? No. Remember, Jesus made parents and children. He's the creator. 
He loves the order of father and son because that pre-exists the creation of the universe, father, son, and spirit. So we're built as an analogy to God. God doesn't say, hey, I'm a, we're like, you know, you guys know fathers and sons. That's what we're like. That's not how it works. God exists eternally as father, son, and spirit, and then makes us in his image, and we have fathers and sons. That's, that's what's going on there. We're, we're theomorphic, not the other way around. And so when he says that your love for me needs to just completely leave your love for your kids in the dust, he's not saying that you love your kids any less. He's saying that what obtains between you and him is so much greater. Maybe you're the kind of person that says, I've only got so much love. It's a zero-sum game. If I'm going to give up some love for Jesus, then the kids are going to lose that much love for me. And that's not the way love works. That's not what the Bible means by love. Love multiplies. And your ability to love your children will exponentially increase if you'll get with Jesus on this. He will equip you to be the mother, father, child of grown parents, of of adult parents that you want to be, that you're called to be. So this is the challenge. This is the challenge. And this is hard. I'll tell you why it's hard. You can touch your parents. You can touch your kids. You can get hold of them. You can see them. You can call them up. They'll talk back to you audibly. We walk by faith, not by sight in our Christian life with our God. Not a lot of burning bush experiences in the Bible or elsewhere. It's a very rare thing actually in the Bible that God shows up and says, here I am. Here's what I want you to do. The people he did that with, they're special. We call them prophets in the Bible, right? So it's hard to be this way about God because he's spirit, because he's invisible, because we don't get to know him and deal with him the way we know and deal with each other. And that challenge is something that um, amounts to being a disciple if we'll face the challenge. I want to show you something that has happened to your civilization. If I can bring this around. Joel, just tap on the screen lightly and scream at me if you can't see this at home. But I think you can. Sorry about that. That's the best we could do with the little... Okay. I hate to not look at you. I hate to turn around and show you my back. It's really bad stage presence, but this is not a stage. This is, this is really more of a teaching event. All right, so there's a guy who told us we can't know God. And you can remember his name because his name was Kant. We can't know God. K-A-N-T, Immanuel Kant. He put this impossible barrier that you'll never cross. Let me put bricks in it. You'll never break the barrier of Immanuel Kant, and everybody who is operating from the worldview of your culture today thinks like he thinks. You probably struggle with thinking like he taught the world to think. It's amazing how ideas work. I don't know how philosophy gets into the hearts and minds of people except that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. But Immanuel Kant, who did not intend to strike out against God, he had a form of theism. He said something that makes us um, doubt what we know. And he said, down here, you have what's called phenomena. That's the plural for phenomenon. Like you would never say phenomenons. You'd say phenomena. Sounds like a, sounds like a, a Sesame Street song, Phenomena. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, so you've got the phenomena, and up here you've got, did anybody know what's on top? Above the barrier? It's a closed system. It's the noumena. Let's make imaginatives. 
the noumenal things and the phenomenal things. Now, this is Immanuel Kant, and he divided knowledge into these categories. Guess which one you can know? Upper or lower story. Yeah, you get to know down here. This is where we really have knowledge. Guess where God is? There may be an ultimate truth, but you can't get to it because you don't have the machinery in your mind, in your soul, spirit, brain to do it. So Kant, and I was way oversimplifying Kant, I recommend you read his critique of pure reason. I've read several reviews of his review of pure reason. But let's, the summary is that the things of God, the spiritual things, you can't really know them. You don't really know because you didn't gain them through sense experience. In fact, reality as it is isn't something you know because you use your brain to, to learn anything. And what your brain did with the information changed it so that you don't really know the thing as it is. You know the thing as you perceive it, which means knowledge is in you and it's all subjective. And that's a lot maybe for some of you. But this is the way the world thinks. Guess what happens in school? Guess what we deal with in school? Phenomena. We deal with the things that we can see and touch and know. Those are the real things. And what's the rest of it? Well, that's all the spiritual stuff that maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but you can't really know. How did we get to this? How in the world did we get to this idea that completely cuts off special revelation from God to us? This is Satan's wall. Satan wants that wall in your brain where you cannot really know the things that God has freely given to you. What happened was, we said, has God really said? We, de- we denied special revelation from God. We said, we don't have an authority in the heavens who has spoken through the apostles and prophets. We don't have an authority in the heavens. It's Genesis 3.5. God, God, you will not surely die. God knows when you eat from the tree, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. The satanic lie that God's truth isn't true, God's statements aren't true, and you can, you can understand that because he's sneaky and he's holding back the goods. He, he doesn't want you to be like God. This, this problem is going on in our politics. I live, I don't believe in this at all. I believe special revelation breaks through this barrier. Knowledge isn't based on my brain. Knowledge is based on the truth. And then my brain comes to know it as God enables me to. But but revelation is its own authenticator. When God reveals, you know it's right because it's from God. That's why I'm very skeptical of people having special revelation in their own inner liver quiver. I don't like that because th- there's authority problem. And now I'm like, okay, you've got to read the whole Bible and memorize it and know it completely like no one ever has in order to say whether or not your new revelation is acceptable, you're testing the spirits, acceptable to what God has actually given us by the apostles and prophets. So I'm, I'm very skeptical about people's special personal revelations because of this problem of knowledge. Now, what's the point of me uh, presenting this to you? Well, see, I, I believe that the most important issues in um, our public discourse are areas where Kant said you can't really know that. Let me give you an example. The most powerful thing in the world the most powerful thing in the world. What is it? Anybody know what it is? It's powerful. Let me, let me say this. It makes more people. 
Pastor, are you going to go there with children in the room? Do you know why Freemasons wear an apron? Anybody here a Freemason? Okay. Well, I'm going to quit talking about that. Now, I, the, the, the G is for God, but the apron is concealing God. Because throughout world history, there has been the worship of the capacity to procreate. If we're not going to worship the creator who's beyond the sun, then we're going to worship under the sun, and the power to procreate becomes the object of our worship. And it's called the phallic cult. It's been with us since Babylon. It's been with us since Babylon. Every one of these alternative religions, you're seeing the phallic cult in front of you from the Marvel Universe all the time. All the time. Beautiful blonde-haired man with a, with a beard. What? Friends, Thor is just part of the old Babylonian system. It's the same thing. Thor and Baal are the same person, I think. That's the same version because he's the one in the, with the sun on the chariot going across the sky. That's Baal. And the phallic cult that God told Israel, do not associate with the Canaanites, that they're worshiping sex. They're worshiping uh, false gods using the practice of sex. This is um, the problem uh, that you're going to have to avoid. Now, why am I talking about this? I think this has everything to do with politics. I think this has everything to do with the way the world is working today. Pastor, are you about to say you're going to go in the same conversation from Thor is Baal to premarital sex is bad? Really? Can you think of another way we as an individual in this country have found to disassociate ourselves from our creator at an individual basis to unhinge our civilization and basically destroy it? I don't know of a more destructive force, a greater acid that has eaten up the fabric of our country, of our civilization. Now, I haven't lived in any other civilization long enough to understand its culture and how it has come unhinged. I just know what's happened to my culture. It didn't start with Elvis, but the legitimacy of sex as a non-marital thing to do started with that, with, the, with the, what the greatest generation allowed in their children. Now, I, I'm not big on style. I'm not talking about style. I'm talking about principle. Now, how would I know that premarital sex, non-marital sex is wrong? How would I know it? I got it from God and Revelation. Now, Kant would say you can't know that. In fact, we, from our sense experience, know that sex is good. But from God and his revelation, we know that fornication is destructive. It's opposed to his order. And I can point out all the various ways it's destructive. Let's point to one. Cohabitation. We've got scientific numbers on this. Cohabitation, that's living together before you get married is actually a predictor statistically for divorce. I'm going to say it again. What everybody tells you is you have to try each other out before you get married, and then you'll know whether or not it's a good match, and then you get married. But actually, the numbers are, if you live together to try each other out first and then marry, you are more likely to divorce than if you hadn't cohabited before marriage. I mean, that's the numbers. Now, I'm going to blame that. I'm going to call that premarital sex. Is it not? Pretending like we're married when we're not? Now, now watch what happens with that. With doing what God said no to, and we do it our way. What happens with divorce and economics? 
Is anybody else enjoying the electric bill as it increases here in Connecticut? A small, modest electric bill is more than $150. A modest electric bill where you're not really running the window unit very much. We don't have two freezers. We've got one freezer. You know, the, the, we, don't, we, we hang the clothes out to dry. A modest electric bill in Connecticut is getting more. Now, you know what's better than two electric bills? One electric bill. That's divorce. It's two electric bills. You know what's better than two mortgages? One mortgage. You know what's better than cutting the grass twice? Cutting it once. But that's what happens because the economic consequence of divorce, and well, is it not? No, everybody that has dealt with this has faced the financial calamity of we built something together and we no longer have it together. Now it's fragmented. And what we were able to do together, we can't do apart. So we're both reduced. We're both diminished. Same money, perhaps, maybe, same money, not the same lifestyle. Economic consequences of divorce. I'm not, I'm not griping about people getting divorced. I'm saying these are, these are the clear consequences of not listening to Revelation and letting Kant build a wall for Satan between what we really know from our senses and what God tells us. Now, that's, that's what's going on in your culture. That's the civilization we live in today. And I, I say opt out of it. You don't, need to, you don't need to get the way to think from this culture. We, you and I, need to get this from God. My, my conscience tells me that I love my parents. God tells me I need to love him more. So I'm going to say, yes, sir. And there's a revelation of God. What do you do with it? I believe it. That's what I do with it. I believe the revelation from God, and then I do it. Verse 38. Jesus says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not what? Worthy of me. So now you've lost yourself. You gave up your parents, you gave up your children, and finally you're clinging by your fingernails to you. And he says, nope, mine too. And now you don't have anything. He gets it all. Well, if he gets it all, then I won't have it. And that's exactly wrong. If he gets it all, then he has you. If he gets it all, then he has you. And he's going to say that throughout the Gospels. It's a challenging statement to realize, oh, This is the one who died to save me and keep me for himself forever. He who has found his life will lose it. He who who has found his life, I've got my, at least I've got my parents. At least I've got my kids. At least I've got my job. At least I've got my, my lifestyle. They can get my, they can repo my car, but they can't get my lazy boy, whatever. Okay. I've got something, whatever you're hanging to, you're losing you're losing. You're, whatever value you hold to it, you hang on to your kids to the exclusion of Christ, you lose them. Hang on to your life to the exclusion of Christ, you lose it. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I love this. This, this beats me up every time I read it. Maybe I'm unique that way, but I doubt it. Some of you are like, I, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> now look, he who has lost his life for my sake, will find it. Have you done that? Have you let him have all of it? Have you said, whatever I have that is valuable to me, I give to you? Have you done that? Or are you the rich young ruler who bow your head, walk away, shuffling your feet, sad, because you have many possessions? 
That's the same, con- it's the same concept. It's the same problem. It's a wonderful challenge. Now watch this. Watch this. What do I need to do to believe what Jesus says? What do I need to do to live out what Jesus says? He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I feel like if I lose myself, then I'm losing out. And I'm what? What am I? What am I? What's, the, what's the emotion that comes to mind when you say, let it all go? Come on, what, what do you feel? <laughs> you feel relief. Well, you, you're in a good spot. What, what if you're not quite here yet? What do you feel? What do people feel when they read this? Yeah. Sad because you're going to what? You're going to lose. You're going to miss out. You know what I feel? I feel afraid. I feel afraid of what I'm trying to conserve. I won't be able to hang on to. I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative. I'm not trying to conserve the old order where all the people belong to the regional fiefdom, to the, to the feudal lord. I'm not part of the old order where the people are basically slaves of the king and they all f- find themselves subjects and chattel to the king. He can say, whoever is your daughter gets to be my wife now and I get to take your son as my slave, as Samuel says in 1 Samuel 8. I'm not a conservative of the old order. I'm a conservative of the liberal new order. I like freedom. I want to see people be able to live their lives before God without anybody saying they own them. That, that's, a, that's conservative American. That's, this is the new project that's never been done in world history. I'm conservative for that, so I'm classically liberal. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't go tell people Pastor Dave's a liberal. <laughs> but I just, I want to see people thrive. I want to see people work and be industrious and be able to keep what they've earned. Instead of say, I made all this, I, I, I harvested all these crops uh, with my own hands on land I could never own and you get all the product and I barely get enough to feed my starving children. I never, I, I don't believe in that at all. Like that happens in China out in the fields when the government controls the economy. Like what, what they saw in the Soviet Union. I, I, I'm a conservative for this liberal project that is dying that we're trying to destroy. All the little Taylor Swifts and everybody of our culture is doing their very best with no historical perspective whatsoever to destroy the freedom that we've enjoyed and, and have gone to war for. I went to war with this in mind, that my, my forefathers had died to provide the freedom that we enjoy. And, and yet, yet we, we don't have any idea what we're talking about. We get on there and just say, well, we have to, we have to preserve freedom for sexual immorality. That's the freedom that we're saving, that, that we're serving. Crazy. It's a crazy time. But I'm going to have to let this go, aren't I? I get afraid when I start to lose what I'm trying to hold on to. When I'm conserving something like, I don't know, classic liberalism and the future for my children to have freedom and property and to do with it what they want for God. When I'm trying to hang on to that, if that becomes an idol like American exceptionalism, like the dream of the United States, like my patriotism for which I was willing to die, if, if, if that's something that becomes an idol that's more important to me than the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to lose it by hanging on to it. I've got to let that go. That's his. Hey, it's yours, Father. It's yours. Jesus Christ controls history. doesn't change my principles. It means that my allegiances realign. Jesus isn't American. He doesn't have a MAGA hat on. By the way, that, if that's anything but a prayer for you, make America great, if that's anything but a prayer, 
God, save us, then you've misunderstood what any hope for the United States is. Our only hope is that God would restore us to our greatness and our sanity. That, that doesn't do this. See, our forefathers weren't playing this game. They were, they were entrenched in Locke, but they weren't Kantian. Now, our, now our, everybody's Kantian. This thing. Satan's wall. We're not play- the forefathers weren't doing this. They believed in an, a creator who gave us an inalienable rights, and they absolutely assumed it. And so that was up here in the, in the noumenal. They believed that as real knowledge. They weren't Kantian. They were Lockean with all, that he, all the good and bad of Locke. All right, so I believe this is something to be afraid of, that I'm going to lose everything. It causes fear. And fear is the opposite of what? Love, fear is the opposite because perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. Hmm? You're going to have to pop off, son. Yeah, courage or bravery. Fear is the opposite of bravery, okay? And um, when Jesus says, Peter, why did you doubt? What should, they have, should Peter have done instead when he fell down in the water? He should have trusted so you've got fear and courage, doubt and faith. And we can see where the goods are. You trust in Jesus Christ and he stabilizes you and you go forward with an expectation and hope that amounts to courage. This is hard for us. In Matthew chapter 16, you want to slip over Matthew 16. <clears throat> Then Jesus said to his disciples, wait, what's going on in Matthew 16? Real quick, who remembers? Socratic method, not going to quit it. Matthew 16, Peter says something really important. Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Jesus say? You're a rock. I call you Peter. And on this Petra, not Petros, but Petra, build my church. And then he says, I'm going to go and suffer and be beaten and crucified and killed by the Jews and raised on the third day. And then what does Peter say? No, Lord, he rebukes him. And the word used in Mark is for like you would say to a little child. But he rebukes him and says, you will not, you will not go and die. And what does Jesus call him? He goes from being the rock to being a rock star. Satan. (laughs) <laughs> get behind me Satan so first he's the rock and he's great and now he's a great failure same chapter and so this challenge that Jesus is going to issue comes on the heels of this conversation verse 23 says get behind me Satan you're a stumbling block to me why why is Peter so wrong what is so so bad about Peter how did he get here? Now, what Peter said is directly opposed to the gospel. That's Satan, directly opposed to the gospel where Jesus will die for us. But Jesus doesn't say you've opposed the gospel. He gets to the motivation in Peter. Why? Why did Peter say you will not die for us? Verse 24, now verse 23, you are setting your mind on, not on God's interest, but on man's. You're not looking at this from God's perspective. You're looking at it from man's. Now, That's something Kant would go for, right? 
you're not here in the things of God. You're here in the things of man. I mean, Kant is right. There is a difference between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. But for Kant, there's no revelation. There's no ability for us to know the revelation of God. But since we broke the wall down, we said, the knowledge that I need the most is not the fear that I have that I lose my friend to the Romans or to the Jews. It's the knowledge that my friend is God the Son who is executing a plan and he's prophesying to us the word of God the Father in this plan that he's going to die. So that's what makes him Satan. He's worried about man's interests instead of God's interests. You got to know that to understand verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Does this mean that you have to die a martyr's death to have eternal life? It does not. But to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to walk worthy of your calling, you have to put on Christ. And you do have to deny yourself. He is God in the heavens. Before all of creation, he's one with the Father. And they have the plan. And the Father plans it and the Son executes it and he becomes a human. He takes on the flesh of creation which he himself made. And he humbles himself in Philippians 2 all the way to the point of death on the cross. If we're going to come after Jesus, we're going to have to put on Jesus. We're going to have to be like Jesus Christ and assume his attitude and his practice. Now, it doesn't mean you die for anyone's sins. It means that your entirety of self is consumed for the Father's purposes. There's no man cave in this story. There's no special space for your stuff. Well, she won't let me have all my old furniture and my whatever, my stupid wall art that I had as a young man before I got married and got good taste. And she won't let me have that stuff upstairs. So I got to put it all downstairs in the man cave. Sebastian Montescalco once said, <laughs> we're going to quote Kant and Montescalco in the same talk. He once said, a man cave, in my house, that was our house. <laughs> my dad was a real man, a man cave. But you, you don't get a special space that's your special uh, side, side pri- privacy from God. You don't get that. You don't get to hold back. Well, I'll give, him, I'll give him a little bit of me, but not all of me. He's not interested. He wants the whole package. So whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Switch over to Luke. Skip Mark. Mark quotes, uh, says the same uh, thing as Matthew pretty much, almost exactly verbatim. Luke chapter 9. Luke, I thought Matthew was challenging. The passages in Luke are even more challenging. You have, you have one minute before this church sees what a whooping looks like. One minute. Go. Nobody time him. It's okay. Don't anybody time him. All right. Don't anybody else leave for the bathroom either. We've got just a few more minutes. Verse 23. Jesus was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Different word, daily. He throws the word daily in as Luke is recording. Remember, Luke writes under the Apostle Paul. It doesn't change the meaning here. But understand that uh, Jesus probably said this a number of times. It was probably a pretty common thing. He spoke. He had three and a half years of earthly ministry, and he's preaching the whole time. He cast out many demons. He healed many sick, and he always preached the message of his father. And so this is 
something that I think he said a number of times, and it's the same message. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. We had find and save, but it's the same idea. Understand, if you're hanging on to you, you're not letting you go for him. You're losing out. Now, we could talk about the sense in which he means you lose. I think he's talking about being a disciple. I think he's talking about the significance of your life. In fact, I think this applies very much to you believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a passage to doubt your eternal security. This is a, doubt, a passage to doubt your eternal significance. You only get to suffer for Jesus now. Forever and ever, you will not suffer for him. You'll be in a resurrection body and eternal bliss, ruling with Christ. Nice work. You will forever be with the Lord Jesus Christ in a resurrection body with no more pain, sorrow, tears, death. The old things have passed away. You only get to suffer and sense loss for Jesus' sake now. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who'll save it. I think Luke 14 has the most challenging verse in the New American Standard Translation. I'm going to get into it just real quick with you. Luke chapter 14, look at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You cannot be Jesus' disciple unless you give up all of your possessions. I once uh, was, I was cruising around the internet. You know, you click on something and, and that leads you to something else. And you click on something else. And um, of course, I was looking up apologetics and, and studying. And there was a, an atheist apologetic site where they were teaching atheists, were teaching other atheists how to argue with Christians. <laughs> that was, uh, it was, it was very informative. Um, one of the things that the atheist young man said was, get Christians to give you their stuff and ask them, can I have your car? Ask them, can I have your, what's in your wallet? I want it. Give me your shirt. And if they don't, they're not a real Christian. And they say they got it from here. If you don't give up all your possessions, you're not a Christian. Well, uh, let's read it in context in Luke chapter 14. In verse 22, he was passing through from one city. Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proclaiming, uh, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he'll answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. The time is short and you only get, you, you get, you get the chance in front of you. Hey, if any of you hasn't believed in Jesus alone as your Savior, that he alone died for your sins and he alone saves you, and you don't do anything about your sins except trust in Jesus Christ, this is the hour, this is the moment, right now. You, could, you, could, you, don't, you don't have to say a prayer. prayer. You have to believe in Christ as your Savior. If you do anything to save yourself from your sins, or if anyone else does, then Jesus did not need to go to the cross. Do not deny the cross. Embrace the cross. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. And he is not a dead savior. He rose from the dead to offer you eternal life. Then you'll begin to say in verse 26, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is chapter 13, but it's still good. Weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last who will be first, and, the, and some are first who will be last. So uh, let's go to chapter 14. And look at what Jesus does in uh, verse 25. Large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We already heard it in Matthew, but this is how Luke, is, this is perhaps another speaking engagement where Luke records this event and says the same message. It's the same message, different words. Now it's not love Jesus more than your parents. It's hate them for Jesus' sake. Do you think Luke's written to a different audience than Matthew? Sure. Luke is written to the broad Greek-speaking Roman world. And uh, that goes along with him being uh, the associate of the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So all the nations are hearing the gospel from Luke, this presentation of the life of Christ. In verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So before we heard we're not worthy of him, now it's you can't be my disciple because that means the same thing. You cannot call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you're willing to go this far. Guess what word doesn't occur in the epistles? Disciple. I think they're making disciples through the epistles. And I think this challenge is very relevant to you and me. How much of your life is not yours? How much of your life is his? And you need to figure out that little, that little Corbin, that little Aiken trinket that you've stolen and give it back to him. You are his. And we need to reckon it. We need to recognize that's true. In verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? What's he talking about? Construction. I'm told by people in construction that you always have to go about 20% over, time and money. The architect and the building company say, this is how much it's going to cost to do this. And then when they bid the project, they say this plus 20%. Because we know that there are going to be waste and accidents and things happen and we didn't calculate something correctly exactly, so 20% over. And then if we come in under budget, great. If you get a bunch of change orders, then change your company. But the point here is counting the cost. How much does it cost to do the project? Now, what happens, he says, in the culture of honor and shame if you don't count the cost and you get halfway through the, the tower and everybody says, that's a little tower. That's a look at the silly little tower. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is very much playing on the idea that you don't want to be a laughing stock. Don't be a proverb to other people around you. Proverb, a lot of times, will be a negative term, meaning you're a point of, uh, of derision, someone to be ridiculed. This man began to build and was not able to finish. See, the problem is partial construction, partial commitment, partial success. Jesus is an interest in it. He wants all of you. Or what king? Another example. The king and, and, and is going to war. When he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. 
The answer is no, run away. In the United States Army tactics, the doctrine is that you attack with twice as many or three times as many as, you, as are defending. Three times as many as are defending. Because the defense is a strong position and it's easy to kill people while you're standing still. It's hard to kill people while you're running at them. Especially with, in a, with guns and, and uh, modern warfare. So you've got to count the cost. You say, okay, we want to take this objective but can I do it? Do I have the forces enough to do it or do I not? And the, the point is, look at what you're trying to accomplish. Do you want your life to count is what he's talking about. Do you want the significance eternally that Jesus wants to give you as his disciple? I do. But I'm ambitious. Aren't you people a little bit ambitious? Don't you love life? Don't you want it to count? Don't, want, don't you want it to matter that you were born and lived and died? It can't matter if it's about you. It can't matter if you're not letting it be about him. It won't matter eternally. This is it. This is the only shot you have at your life really counting. And I believe that with all my heart. And I know that that discounts everyone who disagrees and with, with, with all the pursuits everyone else is going after. And I'm, I'm radical because I've read. I've, I've believed what I've read. I hope you do too. In verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now this is the rich young ruler. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me, and you'll be rich in the kingdom. You'll have an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, he tells the rich young ruler. Now let's review the story of the rich young ruler really quickly. He says to him, Lord, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? And he knows the man. He knows his heart because he's a prophet. And he asks him the question, what does the law say? And he says, okay, the commandments. And then they go through the commandments. And the, and the young man says, I've kept all of these from my birth. Which immediately tells us what? He hasn't understood the commandments. You've loved your neighbor perfectly. You've loved the Lord your God completely, wholly, consistently through your whole life. Or you've done it in your culture the way they say is acceptable. Have you really done it or have you done it to an acceptable standard for yourself? And so Jesus knows that the man has an idol. He's got stuff and he'd rather worship his stuff than Christ. But he'd bring Christ alongside with his stuff. I got my stuff and I got Jesus. Look how great life is. And Jesus isn't interested in that. That's idolatry. That's syncretism. That's bringing two things together that don't go together. So he says, just let go of your stuff and come on with me. Let me ask you a question. Let's say that you are the richest person that you can think of in the moment. They're all about to be a lot less rich, according to all the latest news reports. But anyway, think of the richest person that you can imagine, okay? Billions and billions and billions, oh my, all right? There you are with all that wealth. And there you come up to Jesus and say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I, I love what you've said here. I mean, I believe the word. Jesus says, all right, just donate it all. And then come on with me. Would you find that challenging? Would you have trouble just getting rid of gozillions of dollars and just saying, yes, sir? Let me ask you this question. If Jesus got in the flesh, the one we believe in, I mean, the real Christ of the scriptures and history, who's the same person, if he showed up and asked you for anything, would you hold back? Is there something he couldn't have that he'd like to have from you? Now, here's the problem with, uh, with our, our thoughts about this. We don't trust him. 
we don't think that he's going to take care of this, that he's asking for it for a reason, that he's got a good eternal God sort of reason why he wants that stuff, right? And that's the problem. We don't trust him. It's faith. It's, it all come, it's a test of faith. And the rich young ruler would have been incredibly wealthy for eternity had he taken Jesus up on his offer. Have you done that? It's hard, isn't it? Hanging on to my stuff. You know, they've got Chinese, um, they've, got, they've got a Chinese uh, electric 120-volt plug-in jackhammer at Harbor Freight. It's like 100 bucks. I'm not kidding. I mean, I hope the kids don't find out about this. Uh-oh, I already said it. You know how much damage you can do with a Chinese $100 jackhammer? Sometimes I just feel like that's how we are. We just need someone to come in there and chisel out all the crust, all the rock of, of resistance where we won't trust God and let him have us. But we do that. We hang on to whatever it is that we're going to be an idolater about. And you know what else we do? We build a cocoon of, of love around that thing and woe be to the person who tries to touch our idol. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you love more than Jesus. If someone comes in and says, hey, what's this? They throw it around, catch it. Oh, I dropped it. Sorry. Oh, that person goes to hell if you're in charge because they mess with your idol. And you lost perspective and you're worried about the wrong thing. And that's faith. That's the problem. And the rich young ruler, I think, is a pretty simple riddle. But on this issue of possessions, I pulled it out in Greek. And I wanted to see exactly how Jesus spoke here. Because the other translations don't say, get rid of all your possessions. Now, if that's what Jesus wants from me, if that's what Jesus wants from you, we need to ask some, some hard questions about why we're not willing to do that. Now, don't say a man's got to eat. Don't say, well, we keep a little bit back for ourselves so we can be responsible. That's not the answer. The answer is that everything I am belongs to him absolutely, and he can do whatever he wants with it. And right now he's using it to keep the lights on. Right now he's using it to feed the kids. Right now he's using it for us to get to church and so forth. That's the way we think about our substance, our possessions. I'm trying to sell a house right now. Not advertising for it, just an example. I've counted the cost. I know how much it costs to the realtor and all that stuff, all right? Trying to sell a house right now. Unless the Lord sells the house, they labor in vain who sell it. Now, now, it's his house. If he wants to sell the house, it'll sell. If he doesn't want to sell the house, it won't sell. I've got friends who have houses that aren't selling. And I wonder if the Lord is not selling those houses because they're his and he doesn't want to. Or if he's not selling them because they're not his and uh, he's not their realtor. See what I mean? So then he says, every one of you, pos ex humon, all of you, everyone out of your group, every individual, who does not apotasso, there's your verb. It's in red up there. And my English translation here in the Bible that I'm reading says give up. Does not give up. Usually this is to renounce or, or deny, claim to. Deny would be a good word for this, good translation. You could, you could say give up. But he's not telling you to get four trucks, line up at your house, and then a few hours later drive them to the goodwill and dump it all off. That's not what he's saying. He's saying renounce. He's saying let it go. Friends, do it. Let it go. Whatever it is, let it go. I have to tell my kids this all the time. It's the hardest thing. We've got two hands so we can hold it and then fight each other for it. No, just let it go. There's a Disney song about that. Unrelated. Who does not renounce all these things which are his own is not able to be my disciple. Now, what jumped out at me, I knew something would, when I looked at it in Greek, is the possessive pronouns. Look at this. 
It's awesome. It's so awesome. Now, don't miss this. Charles Stanley, don't miss this. All right, here, watch this. His own is fronted. All the of himself things which are. All the things of himself which are. Verb is, is at the end. Okay? Not able to be of me to be a disciple. The verb is after the pronoun. And so I just think the way Jesus said the sentence, he's making an issue of your stuff versus his stuff. And this is, and then the next chapter is the, the, the valuable things that you, you go after. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the richness of God having you, the richness of God saving you. Now here's the thought. It's an awesome thought. If you've got something that God doesn't say is his, then you don't get to be his. He doesn't have you. Wanted to talk about possessiveness? I want Jesus to possess me. I want him to say, mine, my disciple. That's the idea. If you've got something that's more valuable to you than Jesus having you, then you don't get to have him have you. But if everything you are belongs to him, then he does have you. And that's how it works. He's not competing with your stuff. He's not competing with your affections for other things. And this is the very heart of being a disciple. It's a self-commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love to have a rededication ceremony or something that would verify that everyone here does this. In fact, let's all walk the aisle and say we commit our lives to Christ. It wouldn't make a difference if you walked the aisle or not. Remember the language. Take up your cross daily. This is a daily thought process. Being a good husband is a daily thought process. Being a good wife is a daily self-commitment. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a daily self-commitment. Here's what you do, though. Start off. You got to take a step. If you're going to walk down this road and be wise and make something of your life, or rather Jesus makes something of your life, you're going to have to take the step. Make the, don't, well, I'll wait, till, I'll wait till I feel like it. You'll never take the step. You'll never feel like it. I feel like going on the cross today. Never was it ever said in human history. So forget about how you feel. Forget about your fears or whatever you feel like you're going to lose and start saving it by letting Christ have it. Commit yourself to the Lord and choose to walk worthy of your calling. Heavenly Father, thank you for the challenge of discipleship, the cost involved, that we really are a whole burnt offering. We're committing our entire selves to you, to your attention, to your purposes. Father, there are people in our midst, in our families, in our friendships who don't know Jesus as our Savior, and we pray for them that you would open the door to the gospel, open the door of faith for those dear ones. Father, for all of us here, this is a daily challenge, and I pray that you'd remind us of it, you'd strengthen us for it, and we would always ask ourselves the question, what about my life is more important to me than my Savior? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.